0: and apologize for BJ's blatant lie. Um, I complained the entire time. I hated every minute of it. And I, I'm saying I'd rather be reading a book because I'm not handy at all. Uh, terribly unhandy. So come help us and save us. Me and BJ are trying to figure it out ourselves. Well, I don't think I've been described as beast mode before. Um, oh well, I'll take it as a compliment, I guess. Um, thank you. Glad you guys are here. Welcome to Woodside Community Church. Uh, I'm excited about this morning. I will finally, in Chapter 2, of Mark it took us a while. And Mark chapter two is, is, is interesting because this is the beginning of the opposition to Jesus. Alright, things have been going really well for Jesus so far. He's made this really big splash, right? He's he started to get pretty famous, and anytime that happens, right, somebody isn't going to like it. So enter the scribes and the Pharisees. Right, the scribes and the Pharisees were basically the, the religious leaders of the day. All right, they were kind of like the Catholic priests of the day. These were the guys that you know, studied the Bible, they, they memorized it, they knew every jot and tittle of it, and they created all their own laws themselves, and they tried to make everyone follow all these laws that they made. These are the, the scribes and the Pharisees. All right? Think of them as kind of the religious leaders of the day. And these guys were constantly fighting with and, and opposing Jesus for the rest of the book, we'll see. Um, and, and they wanted a Messiah, right? These guys knew the Old Testament. They were looking for and longing for the Messiah to come. But, but Jesus was just so different than anything that they expected. Then they were sure that, that surely this guy can't be the one. So this morning we're going to look at one of the qualities of Jesus that, that so infuriated the Pharisees. But it was also one of the qualities of Jesus that is so unique and one of the most attractive things about Jesus. This morning we're going to be looking at Jesus' friendship and love for sinners. So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Um, We picked Mark to preach through without realizing that I had preached a couple months ago from Mark 2, verses 1 through 12 here. Um, So instead of just repeating that whole sermon, we'll read the whole passage. I'll summarize really quickly kind of what we talked about from those verses, and then we're going to focus on verses 13 through 17 this morning. So Mark 2, verses 1 through 17, you can find it there, put it inside your bulletin to follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is uh, so much different than we expected. We thank you that he is exactly what we needed. We thank you that he has come for sinners like me, Father, and not for the the healthy and the righteous and the good. I pray right now that you would teach us through your word, that you would change us through your word, and that your spirit would would work in this place and this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so remember last week uh, we saw Jesus' first day on the job, right? He was teaching, right, with this new, unique, one-of-a-kind authority that no one had ever heard before. He was casting out demons with that authority and he's performing all these miraculous healings with that authority. Including, we saw, we focused on even this this healing of this guy with leprosy. He healed this leper. And we saw that, that that kind of little encounter summarized the entire gospel for us. Touching a leper, remember, was to take on their defilement. It was to become unclean. And that's what Jesus does for us in the gospel. So we're the lepers in the story, right? We're defiled, we're unclean, we're dead, but Jesus comes, he touches us, he, he takes on our defilement, and he gives us his purity. Right? He gets our sickness, we get his health. He gets our death, we get his life. That's the gospel. Right? It's, it's revolutionary. It's entirely unique. And there is nothing like it anywhere else out there. And this is what we talked about last time a few months ago when we looked at Mark 2 verses 1 through 12. We see that this short little story from the life of Jesus tells us one of the key things about Christianity that sets it apart from every other religion. Right? The forgiveness of sins. Remember, Jesus is getting really famous, right? Crowds of people are swarming around his house. Everyone wants to hear this new teaching with authority. Everyone wants to get at this new miraculous healer, right? Jesus is basically a rock star at this point. Everything's going really well for Jesus. And the crowds are surrounded around his house, and they're they're so thick, right, that this group of guys can't even get through the crowds to get to Jesus and to bring their paralyzed, crippled friend to him for healing. So, so they don't give up, right? They, they climb to the top of the building. They dig down through the roof. Remember, they had these dirt roofs. So they, dig, they dug down through it right in front of Jesus, and then they lower their friend lying on a mat directly in front of his feet. And look at verse 5. This is interesting. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? <laughs> right? It seems that everyone here understands what's going on except for Jesus, right? It's very clear that this guy is here to be healed. And Jesus says, uh, oh, well, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> what is Jesus doing by saying that? Well, he's doing something extremely offensive and extremely beautiful at the exact same time. By saying to this man that your sins are forgiven, he's telling him that your paralysis, your crippling injury, your extreme physical limitation is not that big of a deal. All right, he, he's looking at this man and saying, you don't know what your real problem is. And Jesus says the same thing to every single one of us. Right? Our, our cancer is not our real problem. Our crumbling marriage is not our real problem. Our, our poverty, our unemployment, these things are not our real problem. Jesus says your sin is the one real problem that you have that matters. Your separation from God is the one problem that you have that counts. Because think about it. Who cares how much money you make for 60 or 70 years? Who cares how great your marriage is? Who cares how great your family is if you die separated from God? And Jesus says to this man, he says, your sins are forgiven. And, and don't miss how big this is. Here, Christianity is distinguishing itself from every other single religion out there. Do you see the scribes' response to what Jesus says here? They're furious. And why? Because listen, these are the smart guys, right? They, they know their Old Testament scriptures. They knew the Bible. And they know that only God can forgive sins. And Jesus here is very clearly claiming to do something that only God can do. So Jesus is saying, I am God. And this is where Jesus comes and, and turns the world on its head. This is why Christianity is completely different than everything else out there. Again, don't waste my time telling me, hey, you know, all you religions, you basically believe the, the same thing. Right? No. This is the forgiveness of sins. And you're not going to find this anywhere else. God himself come as a man and offering to personally take care of the problem that you have created for you. Jesus offers Forgiveness, All that internal guilt that you feel, and you're not quite sure why, well, it's it's because God has created you. He, He designed you to work in a certain way, and you've rejected Him. You've rejected that design, and there's a problem because of that. There's a separation because of that rejection. But Jesus comes in, and He offers to take care of that guilt. He offers to forgive you. He offers to take care of the one problem that we have that really matters. We're going to talk about this a lot. Every other religion says, be good enough, work hard enough, and do the right things, and Jesus or God may save you. Jesus comes and tells you, you can't be good enough, you can't do the right things, you cannot save yourself. But he offers you forgiveness anyways. He comes and he succeeds where we failed so miserably. He comes and lives the life that we didn't. He comes and dies the death that we should have. He comes and he takes our place. And he offers forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. He forgives this paralytic sins, and then he says to him, and he heals him as well. He does both. And just like last week, the people are absolutely astonished. And we, we should be as well. Right? There has never been anyone like this Jesus. And he's going to continue to prove that as we look at these next few verses in verses 13 through 17. Go ahead and look there. That's where we're going to be for the rest of our time. That was kind of just a summary of, of the sermon we did a couple months ago. Jesus is out, right? He's teaching again. Jesus is always teaching. He's wandering and teaching. He's walking and teaching. He's out on the beach teaching. And he passes by a man named Levi. Later in Mark, we're told that Levi is Matthew. All right, in the same story in the book of Matthew in chapter 9, it's Matthew. Remember, people at this time often had multiple names, right? Peter was called Simon. He was also called Cephas. Matthew was also called Levi. All right, same person, Matthew and Levi, the guy who wrote the first gospel in your New Testament. This is who we're talking about. And he's a tax collector. He's, you know, doing his own thing, minding his own business, sitting at work at his little booth there, doing his job. And then very similar to um, our previous chapter in the call of the first four disciples, Jesus simply shows up, he walks up to Levi, and he says, you follow me. And Levi gets up, and he obeys. Now, listen, this doesn't quite have the same effect on us today as it would back then. If you were a Jewish reader of this book about 2,000 years ago, you would be thinking right about now, oh man, all right. Here we go again. Alright, who does this Jesus guy think that he is? In the last chapter, he's off running around touching lepers. And now, here he is calling tax collectors to be his followers. Who, do, who does this guy think that he is? You see, the only people 2,000 years ago in Jewish society that were possibly more hated and more discriminated against than the lepers were the tax collectors. Alright, the lepers didn't choose to have leprosy. Right, but the tax collectors chose to be tax collectors. And why? Why is this so bad? Why is this tax collector thing such a big deal? Well, it's, it's bad because of Rome. Right, remember, we got tiny little Israel, right? a small little country. And we had big, massive Roman Empire. Right? Remember, the Romans have come in. They've, they've conquered the Jews. They've put in their own leaders. They've taken over. And at the same time, they've levied these ridiculously oppressive taxes on the Jewish people. Right, they're taxing them to death. Not only that, but the Romans were smart. Right? They were too lazy to come in and, and do the taxing themselves. So what did they do? They went and hired Jewish people to do the tax collecting for them. Right? So these people were considered traitors. These were Jewish people who had betrayed their people and who were now working for the enemy. And at the same time, right, there was a quota. Rome would set a quota for these tax collectors. Say, this month you have to get me this much money. After they reached that quota, the tax collectors were free to collect as much as they could on top of that, and it went straight into their pockets. All right, so these tax collectors, these guys were loaded, all right? These guys were making a lot of money, and they were known for their dishonesty and their extortion. They would go to whatever means necessary to get your money and to get wealthy. They were used to getting rich by betraying their own people and robbing their people and giving that money to the enemy. Think about the IRS, All right, Nobody likes the IRS, right? I apologize if you work for the IRS. Um, I'm learning that it's even worse up here, right? The taxes are, are insane up here, right? So I'm, I'm figuring this out. But no one likes the IRS of our own country. All right, so, so take the IRS and take how little we like them right now and then imagine if like our country had been conquered or taken over by someone like Al-Qaeda. All right, so now you're living in a militant Muslim state and they are taxing you at double the rate that the IRS was taxing you. And not only that, but they are taking your money, and then they are using it to pay for and fund terrorism and wars against Christians and Americans all across the world. And not only that, but they hired your neighbor next door to come and work for them to come to your house every day and get your money and to threaten to arrest you if you don't give them all your money. That's what's going on here. That's basically what the tax collectors were thought of back then. They had betrayed their own people. Now they were the enemy. They were the lowest of the low. Later Jewish writings, you'll find, they always there were always this category for sinners. There was always three groups of people, always together. Two of them make sense to us. They always make thieves and murderers. And then the third one was always tax collectors. Every time they write thieves and murderers, tax collectors was right there with it. Because tax collectors were the equivalent to them of murderers. That's how bad these guys were. They were disgraced. They were outcasts from their family. They often weren't allowed to be in the temple or the synagogue. They were complete social outcasts. They had given up everything. They had traded everything to make money at the expense of their people. And in fact, remember, they're working for the Romans, right? So their constant work and contact with these Roman Gentiles made the tax collectors unclean. Does that sound familiar, right? Same as last week. Tax collectors were just like the lepers in the eyes of the Jew. Touching a tax collector was to become unclean or defiled. So here we have Jesus again, like last week, willing to take on an outcast, to take on a sinner's defilement on himself. Jesus is touching lepers, and now he's invited tax collectors to be his follower. And this act, people think, was actually the more scandalous of the two. People hated tax collectors so much. Look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. All right, so we find out in Luke that this house, they go to Levi's house. And Levi, he's excited. He throws this big feast. Remember, this guy had money. So he throws this massive feast, and he invites all of his friends. All right, remember, tax collectors... Social outcasts, rejected from society. So who are Levi's friends? Other tax collectors and other outcasts. Other people that have been rejected by society. And we just got a party here. You got Jesus and a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. Now, does that sound a little bit odd to you? Does that make you a little bit uncomfortable maybe? We have Jesus here, right? The man without sin. The creator and savior of the world. And across the table from him is, is the traitor to his country. Over there is, over there is the prostitute. On his left is, is the drug dealer. Over there is, is the ex-con. And, and that's kind of what the scene would look like if this was happening today. Jesus was having dinner. He was fellowshipping with the worst of the worst. The worst sinners at that time were sitting around the table with Jesus. And sadly, I think that this was happening today... Many Christians would respond to such an occasion just as the Pharisees do in verse 16. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So we have the scribes, we have the Pharisees. Remember, they're the good people. Right? They're the religious people. These are the guys that go to church every day and tithe regularly. These are the good, solid, religious people. And they are scandalized by Jesus' behavior. Look look who that Jesus is, is hanging out with. He's, he's fellowshipping with, with wicked people. Uh, a teacher, a rabbi, should never be caught dead with people like that. Have you ever thought that about someone? You know, oh, uh, you know, a Christian would never be in a place like that. I don't know, a Christian would, would never do things like that. Listen, we all have. That's our Pharisee coming out of us. Has someone ever actually told you this? I've been told this a lot. Has anyone ever advised you that you shouldn't do something even though that something isn't necessarily a sin, but you shouldn't do, do something so as not to give off even the appearance of evil. Has anyone ever been told that? I was, I was told that a lot when I was younger. Like, oh, you know, maybe listening to non-Christian music isn't a sin, but you shouldn't do it so you don't even give off the appearance of evil. All right, turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Thessalonians 5.22. It's a hard one to find. It's a little one. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, kind of in the middle of your New Testament there. This is Paul's letter to a church in Thessalonica. This is where this idea comes from. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. If you're you're reading in your your King James Bible, it says this. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Paul simply writes, short and sweet, abstain from all appearance of evil. Right? That's it. This verse has been absolutely abused in many Christian circles to basically bully and guilt people into doing all kinds of things that aren't required in the Bible. This is like the legalist's favorite verse. Ah, sorry ladies, you, you can't wear pants. You've got to avoid all appearance of evil. All right? Sorry kids, you can't play Uno. You know, cards are you bad. You've got to avoid all appearance of evil. And there's just this list of all these things that we're not supposed to do to avoid all appearance of evil. The problem is, with that verse, and that understanding is is that the word appearance there, it's not what the Greek word means. Think about it in context of our story this morning. If we are to avoid all appearance of evil, if we are to refrain from everything that anyone could possibly think was wrong, according to this understanding of this verse, then Jesus did a terrible job of obeying this command. Jesus, according to this verse, Failed to abstain from all appearance of evil. As in our passage, he was constantly getting accused of hanging out with the wrong people and and going to the wrong places and eating and drinking the things that he shouldn't do. Jesus did not avoid all appearance of evil. And in fact, it, it seems that he sometimes specifically put himself in situations where these Pharisees and these legalistic people could accuse him of this appearance of evil. So are we called by Paul to do something that Jesus definitely did not do. Well, our dilemma is pretty easily resolved if we look at a, at a more accurate translation of that verse. The ESV says simply, abstain from every form of evil. Every other translation of the Bible says the same thing. The word is eidos in the Greek, and it means type or form or kind. All right, so the verse quite simply means Avoid all kinds of evil. Avoid all types of evil. And doesn't that make a lot of sense, right? Evil is bad. Sin is bad. Stay away from it. That's all Paul is saying in that verse. That makes a lot more sense than requiring us to do something that Jesus didn't do. Listen, you are not held responsible for what every single Pharisee thinks about what you do. You can't control what other people think about you, especially when what they are thinking does not correspond with scripture. Jesus was constantly being accused of evil because of the places that he went and the people that he spent time with and, and Jesus honestly didn't seem to be too worried about it. So we, we got to keep ourselves, we can't let ourselves become slaves to, to what a few legalistic people think about what we do. Now listen, this is not a license to go out and sin at all. The verse is very clear. Avoid all evil. Don't sin. Avoid sin. Paul and Jesus say the same thing over and over again. And there is biblical warrant for being careful about what we do around our weaker brothers. We are to be wise with our Christian conduct around um, new Christians, and we want to prevent them from, from stumbling based on what we do. But a mature, well-informed legalist is not a weaker brother. All right? It's not your job to live up to all these extra biblical standards that some people may try and impose on you. A very important verse that I think we missed, Paul warns us, in in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, he says, Do not go beyond what is written. That is a good rule for believers. Do not go beyond what is written. He's saying, basically, don't add stuff to the Bible that's not there. Don't try to be more Christian than Jesus was. Don't make being a Christian about doing all these extra other things that you're not going to find anywhere in the Bible. All right, to try and do so will only lead to despair when you fail, or it will make you a self-righteous Pharisee who, who trusts in, in your own goodness instead of Jesus Christ. So here we have Jesus very clearly not avoiding all appearance of evil. Let's get back to our text. Just Again, just look at the people that are surrounding Jesus in this story. This is the type of crowd that he attracts, and we see this regularly throughout his ministry. In Luke 15, 1-2, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And this is one of the main reasons that the Pharisees hated Jesus so much. Right? Jesus did not meet their extra-biblical, legalistic standards that they had constructed. Oh, this man can't be the Messiah. He's not even as holy as we are, right? Look at who he hangs out with. We're better than this guy. He doesn't follow the law as well as we do, so there's no way that he could be our Savior. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Listen. He doesn't just eat the occasional meal with sinners. He is accused of even more in Luke 7, 34. He says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, he's talking to the Pharisees, and you Pharisees say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is one of the great scandals of the ministry of Jesus. Maybe besides his his claim to be God and the creator of the world. This is kind of the great scandal. Jesus Christ, God himself, the Messiah, the Son of God, the friend of sinners. And the Pharisees, they can't handle this. They don't even have a category for this. These self-righteous, legalistic people today still can't handle this. But is this not a truth kind of at the very center of the gospel? Is this not what we've been talking about for all of these weeks? This is why Christianity is so different. This is why Jesus stands out. Every other religion teaches the same thing. And the Pharisees represent that in this story. They expected God to give them salvation because they were good enough. Because they were so good and so holy and kept all the rules. They had earned it. Right? You owe me, God. I've earned this. Give me my salvation. And that's what other religions will tell you. Do this. Figure this out. Be good enough. Be smart enough. And God will save you. That's not what Jesus says. Right? He shows up and he completely changes the game. He does something else that, that no one has ever done. He comes and he says this in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. I came not to call them righteous, but sinners, scandalous. And the Pharisees could not stand it. You see, many people like the Pharisees, they like certain kinds of religion because it says, you know, if you're good enough, if you have enough control, if you're strong enough and work hard enough, you're going to come out on top and, and you'll be saved. But what Jesus is saying here shatters that notion. Jesus here says that Christianity, it says that salvation, it's not for the strong. He says it is available to everyone. And it is especially available to the weak, to the people that recognize their need for help. It's not for the healthy, it's for the sick. It's not for the righteous, it's for sinners. You see, often I'll hear people say, nah, you know, I really kind of like this Jesus guy. I really like parts of him. He's really nice. Uh, he's always healing people and helping people and, and serving people. But then they'll say, they always say, but, but you Christians, but you Christians, you're so narrow-minded. You're so exclusive. You know, I can't believe anyone would say in the 21st century that Jesus is the only way to be saved. That's, that's so arrogant, right? That's so intolerant. And you hear that a lot these days. And listen, that's just going to increase. We're going to keep hearing that. But this is what we talked about last week. You can't like part of Jesus and then kind of reject the parts of Jesus that you don't like. Jesus is the one who comes and says, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? That's as exclusive as it gets. And we're not the ones making this up. We're just echoing what Jesus says. He, He comes to Levi. He comes to all who would be his disciples, and he says, follow me. It's all or nothing. You can't pick or choose. You either follow him or you don't. So, Jesus makes this extremely exclusive claim that offends everyone. No one likes exclusivity today. Okay? I don't know if you know this, but, but the only thing that people recognize today as being a sin is making an exclusive claim. All right? Making an exclusive claim and saying that maybe not everyone is okay and that maybe not everyone should just do whatever they want and it doesn't matter. That's, that's like the worst thing that you can say today. Jesus comes and very clearly says exclusivity. He says it's my way or it's nothing. But look at his way. Look at how our story this morning explains that exclusivity. Look who Jesus dines with. Look who he called to be his follower. A tax collector, right? The worst of sinners. And this is the scandal of Christianity. Yes, Jesus makes exclusive claims, but it is the most inclusive exclusivity that you will find. Listen, everyone is exclusive, right? Everyone has kind of a list of people who count and people who don't. We live, our culture is supposed to be the most tolerant and inclusive culture ever, but this over-tolerant culture, you know, excludes those of us who happen to maybe believe that the Bible is true and that something like abortion or homosexuality is wrong. Everyone is exclusive to some degree. But Jesus' exclusivity is the most inclusive exclusivity out there. Look at what he's doing. Remember, religion says be good enough. It says be smart enough. It says have enough power. It says work hard enough and God will reward you. And Jesus shows up right here and he says, you've got it all wrong. He says, I'm not coming for you guys. He says, I'm coming for the sick. He says, I'm coming for sinners. I'm coming for the weak and I'm coming for the outcast. And he makes it even more painfully explicit in Matthew twenty-one thirty-one. All right, He's talking to the Pharisees again. The super righteous, healthy religious guys are challenging him. And Jesus basically slaps them in the face. He couldn't say anything more offensive than this in verse 31. He says, Truly I say to you Pharisees, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus could not be much clearer than that. And they would eventually have him killed for things like this. Listen, make sure you get this, because this is so counterintuitive to everything that we're used to. This is so different than everything we generally hear that we often miss it. The more I talk to people about Christianity, and the more I talk to people about the gospel, the more I become convinced that no one out there understands it at all. And that's why they can make the claim that, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing, because they think that Christianity says, do these things, be good enough, and God will accept you. But that's not Christianity. That's what the Pharisees thought it was all about. But Jesus shatters that idea in just these few short verses. He says, I am coming for the weak. I am coming for the down and out. I am coming for sinners. He does the exact opposite of what the religious people expected him to do. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. No other religion says that. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He's not saying here that the Pharisees are actually righteous. All right? Paul is pretty clear in Romans 3 that no one is good, and no one is righteous, and no one seeks after God. Jesus is saying that he isn't coming for those who consider themselves to be righteous, when in fact they aren't. They're not actually righteous, they just consider themselves to be righteous. In Luke 18, Jesus talks about a Pharisee, and he describes the Pharisees as those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. See, that a Pharisee is one who trusts in themselves for their own righteousness. And Jesus says, that's not it. That's not how it works. In the rest of that passage, he he gives the account of two different men praying. you got a Pharisee praying first. And he records the Pharisee's prayer. And the Pharisee says this. He prays to God saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And listen, we know this is wrong like we know, but, but we do the exact same thing. Right? We see someone doing certain questionable things and our first thought is, oh man, you know, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? You know, I, I'm better than him at least. That's, that's pretty good. But, but that's the Pharisee coming out in us. That's our failure to understand the gospel. But also, standing near the Pharisee at a distance, he's afraid to even come to the front. He's afraid to even lift his head. He's he's beating his chest, and his tax collector cries out to God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that it was that man who went home justified. And there we see the necessary first step to salvation. Humility. An accurate self-diagnosis. An accurate understanding of the condition of your heart. Listen, you don't have to tell me, you don't have to raise your hand, but be honest with yourself. What do you think of yourself? How do you, what is your kind of default mode of thinking about who you are? Do you kind of generally think of yourself as a pretty good person? You know, well, at least compared to other people, right? You know, I've never stolen anything. I've I've never killed anyone. You know, I didn't cheat on my taxes. You know, I've never cheated on my wife. You know, I'm honestly, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, not that bad. Or... Do you think of yourself as, as John Newton thinks of himself, the writer of Amazing Grace, who, who calls himself a wretch? Do you think of your heart as Jeremiah does? He describes it as deceitful and, and wicked and desperately sick. Do you say along with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. Do you think of yourself as, as Paul does in Ephesians 2, as completely spiritually dead because of your sins? Do you think of yourself as Jesus personally himself, describes his disciples in Luke eleven thirteen 13, when he calls them evil. Do you cry out with the tax collector, have mercy on me, a sinner? Are you healthy or are you sick? Are you righteous or are you a sinner? Are you a Pharisee or are you a tax collector? Listen, it is very important that you get that question right because Jesus says that I'm coming for one, one category, but I'm not coming for the other one. He comes not for the healthy, but he comes for the sick. He comes not for those who think themselves strong, but weak. And this is the scandal of grace. This is why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much. And this is still just as much of a scandal today for many people. About 150 years ago, I was forced to read this guy a lot. That's why I'm going to bring him up. But I don't expect you to read him. There was this German man, and his name was Friedrich Nietzsche. All right, this is one of the most significant thinkers in the last 200 years. All right? Many of the things that our society is today, many of the things that we think today are, are attributable to this guy. A very significant thinker. But this guy absolutely despised everything about Christianity. And he specifically despised this part. All right? He was just like the Pharisees. In one of his books, he talks about the Christian God. And he says how much he hates the Christian God because the Christian God is the God of the weak. Right? He he hated Christianity because he says that it praises all that is weak and low and botched. And he calls this God the God of he calls this God thin and weak. Right? He thought God was supposed to be big and strong and, and powerful, just like the Pharisees. Nietzsche, his philosophy, he was all about what was called the will to power. The will to power. Power is the key word there, right? It was basically the belief that like, do everything that you possibly can, all of your ambition, try hard as you can, strive, accomplish everything to get as much power as you can. That's the only way you can function and thrive, is to just get all the power that you can. He was all about force and about power. And basically, he was a Pharisee. And when it comes down to it, his teaching was really no different than the teaching of every other single religion out there. It was try hard enough, be strong enough. Do as much as you can. But it doesn't work. All right? Nietzsche tried his hardest to live according to his claim that, that God was dead. He tried to live his life based on this idea of the will to power, but he could not do it. He died a miserable man. At the age of 44, he had a complete mental breakdown from which he would never recover. Listen, you can't live that way. And Jesus says, I have not come for the healthy. He says, but for the sick. I have not come for the strong, but for the weak. So which are you? Do you see yourself as the Bible sees you? Or do you see yourself as a pretty good person that, that pretty much has things figured out? This is Jesus Christ, alright? Don't miss this. This is the friend of sinners. And it drove the Pharisees mad. Now listen, Jesus never condoned sin. He didn't affirm people and say, you're all right just the way you are. Don't even change. No. He was always calling people to repentance. Jesus required change. Remember, following Jesus requires obeying Jesus. There must be a change of heart. There must be a change of loyalty from ourselves to God. But it is the sick that are in need of the doctor, not the healthy. So Jesus goes to the sick. Listen, sin is the sickness. The gospel is the remedy. All right, we have been given and entrusted with the remedy. Tell me, are you taking it to the sick? Or are you so concerned with avoiding all appearances of evil and, and, and staying away from sinners that, that you're keeping the remedy to yourself? When Jesus saves us, he sends us back into the world with the cure. He doesn't send us just inside the church walls with a bunch of people that are like us and that believe the same things that we do. No, he sends us to sinners. Tell me, do you even know any tax collectors or any sinners? Could it be said of you that you are a friend of sinners, like it was said of Jesus? Are you following Jesus Christ in this area? There's a famous quote out there that says that the church is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. Is this place a hospital for sinners? What would you be more excited about happening next week? Would you be more excited about... Five kind of like nice middle class families with a bunch of nice little kids, well behaved, with some good money. And these people could probably really help with the giving, right? And they, they, they're just like you and they kind of think like you. Would you be more excited about them showing up next week? Or would you be more excited about maybe like the lesbian couple sneaking into the back? Or the couple Muslims coming to sit in church and, and check out what this thing all about? Or, or the ex-con coming in and just wanting to hear about Jesus? Are we a museum for saints or are we a hospital for sinners? Listen, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of sickness out there. And Jesus is the only cure. We have to follow our Lord in this area. We can't be afraid of of catching their sin, of catching their ickiness, or or being tainted by their their wickedness. We can't be afraid of what other Pharisees will think about what we're doing. We believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that Jesus really is, as he says, the only way, truth, and the life. Are we spreading that good news? Jesus says, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Which one do you think that you are? It is an eternally important question. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you he was so much more than anything we could have ever imagined. We thank you that he is exactly what we need. We thank you that he was nothing like what the Pharisees thought. Father, I confess to you my sin and my weakness. I confess to you my proneness to, to wander and to try and do my own thing and to try to prove myself and, and earn my way and, and to show how good of a person I am and how I've got it all together. Father, we are sinners. We are all sinners. Father, we either recognize it or we don't. So, Father, I pray that you would show us our sin Show us uh, a picture of ourselves. Show us, I pray that our opinions of ourselves will correspond with, with what the Bible says about us. Father, we need we need the remedy. We need the cure. We need life, Father. And that comes only through the gospel. That comes only through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for coming and making a way when we rejected you, when we had made ourselves your enemies. You still came and you pursued us and you sent your son so that we can be saved. So, Father, we thank you for this truth we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. I pray that this place would be known as a hospital for sinners. Father, I pray that we would swing open these doors, Father, and invite people in and then share the gospel with people and serve people and love people in this place. Father, use this, this church to, to serve and bless this community. We thank you for this time. And we thank you for your word. We pray all these things in, in your son Jesus' name. Amen.